0: Hey, Pasa, Mufasa. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today I'm honored to welcome back one of the pioneers of the global mushroom industry, an individual who's been cultivating mushrooms professionally for five decades now, and someone who clearly knows a mushroom when he sees one. Everybody, please welcome Jeff Chilton of Namex. Back to the Mycopreneur Podcast.
1: What's happening is companies will put mycelium onto sterilized grain, grow it out, then they'll dry it, grind it to a powder, and sell it as mushroom. And this has been going on for quite a long time. And I was just like, this can't be allowed to continue. And one of the things that I did at that point in time, I had a, a test I could test these products for not only the beta-glucans in there which are very low in those products but also for starch and you know the issue is that mushrooms have no starch but these products because they're mostly grain are primarily starch and so it's very very easy to actually differentiate and to show
0: analytically what they are. Today's podcast is being released concurrently with a Rolling Stone article that addresses many of the same key points that Jeff further unpacks today. And that's because Micropreneur Podcast, as well as myself and Jeff's son Sky Chilton of Real Mushrooms... I'll get name-dropped and featured in this Rolling Stone article. It features quotes pulled from the episode I recently did with Sky, where we dive into the ongoing mushroom industry dispute around which part of the fungal organism exactly constitutes a mushroom. Hint, hint. I've never met anybody who consumes psilocybin mycelium. And neither have you, probably. So we're going to dive deeper into this incredibly important discourse today, which quite literally has billions of dollars at stake, and pits some of the mushroom industry's biggest brands and names Directly against each other. This podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost, purveyor of premium quality mushroom supplements produced to the highest standards and, of course, only made using fruiting body mushrooms. None of that mycelium on grain business. Check out MicroBoost, M Y C R O B O O S T, right now. Pop it in your Google box or hit the link in my bio on the Micropreneur podcast Instagram page and get yourself on the daily fruiting body functional mushroom supplement routine if you haven't done so already. This episode is also brought to you by Usea Labs, manufacturers of the world's first at-home tabletop CO2 extractor the Usia Fountain. But Dennis, why would I want to have an at-home extraction unit? Well, I'll tell you why. Because then you can finesse yourself pure essences and flavors right in the comfort of your own home. This can apply to making various medicinal oils and flavors out of plants that you've cultivated. Think of the Usia Fountain like a soda stream unit. But instead of carbonated water, you get pure extractions. And lastly, Mycopreneur has been nominated for Media Company of the Year, and I've been nominated for Reporter of the Year at the third annual Wonderland Awards presented by Microdose. This is the biggest stage globally for the emerging psychedelic industry, and I'm incredibly honored to receive this recognition. If you feel compelled to vote for me to win in either of the categories in which I'm nominated, please visit awards.com com slash vote or click the top link in the bio of the Michael Pernour Instagram page and help me secure this bag. You can vote once per person per day. Let's get it. And of course, it would be much appreciated if you'd rate this episode and potentially leave a review wherever you're listening. Alrighty then. Without further ado let's get down to business. Hey, Pasa, Mufasa, what's up everybody? We've got Jeff Chilton of Namex back on the podcast. Great to see you again today, Jeff. How's everything in British Columbia? Dennis,
1: it's it's great. It's summertime. We always look forward to summertime because we don't get enough sun here in the north. So um, it's been, it's a nice season so far. Lots of sun.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jeff, I'm thinking of launching a myceliated oatmeal brand that just does breakfast products made with myceliated oats. Should I be able to market this product as mushroom oats? Why or why not, Jeff?
1: Well, first of all, it's not a mushroom. I like the idea, though, Dennis. That's where these products should be used. They're actually food products and myceliated oats That sounds kind of cool, actually, the right kind of uh, maybe a little honey in there or something like that. But, yeah, that's a great idea. They are food products, not really supplements.
0: Sure. I understand that you've been petitioning the FDA with a citizen's petition specifically relevant to accurate labeling of these products and we were both in Denver recently, and we had a chance to kind of survey some of the newer players and some of the old guard in the mushroom industry. And I realized that this has been an ongoing sort of, let's call it an unsettled debate between a lot of the different parties and stakeholders in the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about this citizen petition and where you stand on it? And is there any common ground that you've managed to achieve with all of the other stakeholders who maybe have different opinions than you?
1: Well, you know, you know, the interesting part about this is, is this kind of started back in, 2014. And at that point in time, I was writing uh, a white paper called Redefining Medicinal Mushrooms because what I realized at that point in time was there was a lot of products being sold that were not actually mushroom. And for people who aren't aware of this, what's happening is uh, companies will put mycelium onto sterilized grain, grow it out, then they'll dry it grind it to a powder and sell it as mushroom. And this has been going on for quite a long time. And I was just like, this can't be allowed to continue. And one of the things that I did at that point in time, I had a a test where I could test these products for not only the beta-glucans in there, which are very low in those products, but also for starch. And you know, the issue is that mushrooms have no starch. But these products, because they're mostly grain, are primarily starch. And so it's very, very easy to actually differentiate and to show analytically what they are. Now, I went to American Herbal Products Association in 2017 after a number of years with my white paper where nobody was really paying any attention to this issue. And I said, okay, let's get together, uh, stakeholders, and let's address this issue. APA came up with a policy that said, okay, look, you have to declare what you've got. You've got to properly label it. Nobody paid any attention to it. (laughs) You know, it's a trade organization. Nobody cared. So finally, after pushing back all these years, and, and, you know, the interesting thing, Dennis, even before the citizen's petition, if you go out there, let's say on Amazon or Just in general, look at product labels. A lot of labels now say no mycelium, no grain, no starch. And this just goes to show you that we've had a major impact on it. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why this Mushroom Summit came together. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this Mushroom Summit was just sort of dreamed up at the last moment by uh, Del Jolly of Umbo, who was knew the organizer of psychedelic science, and they just kind of attached this thing to the front end of psychedelic science. And and they put together a program at the Mushroom Summit, which which really, uh, I mean, Dennis, I don't know what you thought of the whole thing. It, it, was, it was great to meet certain people there, right? But a lot of the talks were, in my opinion, not really that interesting, um, the panel that I was on, God, man, you, you know, they, they packed it with five people. And that was the panel that was supposed to be the panel for myceliated grain products and actual mushroom products. They packed it with five people. The, the moderator of the panel actually had an hourglass that gave everybody on the panel two minutes to respond to her questions or statements. Can you imagine? And, and, and you know, the interesting part about it was that this issue was one of the reasons why they created the Mushroom Summit. It was like the seminal, and this was the one that everybody was kind of looking forward. Okay, great. We get to air all of our comments about this. And, and They diluted it. And they gave us, I mean, what? There were four questions and two uh, minutes per answer. I had eight minutes. Come on. God. I I mean, look, I, I could speak about this for an hour because there's so much to it. But eight minutes, I mean, think about that for a second.
0: You know, my hourglass that I have for your timer just elapsed, so it's been nice having you on the podcast, Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You can talk as much as you want here. It's one of the nice things about having an independent platform here, and it is a super important issue that a lot of people want clarity on because one of my takeaways from the Mushroom Summit and just being more directly involved in this space and industry over the last few years is the explosion of interest in mushrooms and As a consequence of that, you have a ton of new players who have come to the market. And whenever that happens, of course, you're going to have opportunists. You're going to have, you know, competing narratives and and trade organizations who want to amplify certain narratives. And then we've got Namex and Jeff Chilton, who have been exclusively devoted to the science of mushrooms and the industry of mushrooms since the 1980s. Honestly, for as long as I've been alive. So... (laughs) <laughs> it's worth at least giving you a little bit more of an expanded platform here without time requirements. Can you punch in a little bit on some of your takeaways from this explosion of interest over the last few years of all these newcomers, all these new brands, new trade shows, new organizations, new summits, etc.? What are some of the challenges and the opportunities that this explosion of interest around mushrooms has brought to an organization like Namex?
1: Well, you know, uh, first of all, one of the things that Namex has done that no other companies have done is we do a tremendous amount of analysis. And that's really the key to any herbal product, any product in general, food product. Analyze it for the important compounds. Be able to provide a profile that guarantees, for example, to our customers that, yes, you are getting a genuine mushroom product. It has the compounds that should be in there, like beta-glucans, which is the most important compound of all. That's a compound that actually makes a mushroom medicinal or functional. Without beta-glucans, it just is not a medicinal mushroom. And, And there's a tremendous body of information on that. We can measure beta-glucan. So we do that and every single product we sell will come with a guarantee of not less than X amount of beta-glucans. Uh, we also measure for ergosterol, which is the fungal sterol. So th- that's just like our cholesterol. When you measure a mushroom product, there should be a certain amount of ergosterol in there. If there isn't, you can almost say this might not even have any fungal matter in there. And then we measure for a third compound called Ergothionine, which is a really cool longevity compound that mushrooms produce one of the highest amounts of this compound of any food. So we build a profile of every single mushroom that we sell. So all the species have a profile. We can test every lot that we manufacture. against We can test these products, myceliated grain products, with that same battery of tests. And one of the things about, about the Mushroom Summit, like you said, there's a lot of new players there, and somebody was spreading this idea that, oh, there's no standards for mushrooms, and oh, nobody knows exactly, and totally, totally false. We've had these standards in place for six, seven years, and that was what came out of my white paper in 2015, where I said, there are no standards, we need them, we're going to provide them. And, and the industry has taken note of that. But at the same time, if you look at these companies that produce this myceliated grain tempeh like product, you will find that none of them give you any actual analytical information about their products, with the exception. Of polysaccharides and that's what's so interesting because beta-glucans are polysaccharides but so are starches so if your product has a lot of starch in it from either a carrier or grain it's gonna be very high in polysaccharides and so these companies will say oh our, our, our products are full of polysaccharides and you're just like yeah st- starch. So that's the other part of it that we have to educate people about is look, polysaccharides are just a metric that is useless, absolutely useless. And so in that sense, Namex has provided this profile of what you should see in a functional mushroom product. If you don't have these compounds in there. Well, you probably don't have a functional mushroom. And this is especially true of beta-glucans. And, you know, one of the funny things about this this summit, on my panel five people, well, Christopher Hobbs was on there too, which was great. Christopher's a really nice guy. He's written books on medicinal mushrooms. And look, as you remember, I held up a reishi and a chaga and, and I also held up a bag of this myceliated grain, which I had brought with me, and said, some people are saying this bag of grain is a mushroom. <laughs> and, and, you know, imagine, imagine, for example, a chaga. And, and you've seen chaga, right? It is this gnarly. Black thing, and that black outer rind is melanin, and inside is is a uh, um, broken down woody tissue with next to no fungal matter. I mean, maybe ten percent of mycelium, and you look at this chaga and you go, okay, you can't grow it; it's only wildcrafted. But they grow the mycelium that has uh, colonized the birch tree to produce the chaga. They grow this mycelium on grain and say this is a chaga. Can you imagine that? (laughs) They're actually claiming that that bag of grain is a chaga, for God's sakes.
0: Well, it's nice to have someone who can kind of frame this in such a clear and concise way that people can relate to it. And I did think that was a wonderful example of, can you point to which one is the mushroom? You hold up a mushroom and you hold up a bag and you know, it passes the litmus test there. So another theme that I picked up on from statements made at the Mushroom Summit in particular is this desire for some companies to develop a robust domestic supply of mushrooms. And they pointed to COVID and the supply chain disruptions of doing international business as one of the reasons why people want to develop a robust domestic supply. Nemex has been very active in China. China is able to produce this massive scale of mushrooms and in particular for supplements. So could you provide a little bit of context and a little bit of clarity about your position on people wanting to develop more robust domestic North American supplies versus doing business in China and having them shipped internationally?
1: Sure, y- you know, look, I started growing mushrooms commercially on a big farm in 1973, way before you were born, Dennis. <laughs> so uh, I know the economics of mushroom growing. And, and for example, if I, if I grow shiitake mushrooms right now, I mean, you know shiitake, maybe you're going to pay $10, $12 a pound retail for shiitake mushrooms. Maybe the growers going to get $5 a pound for fresh shiitake You can do that. You can grow mushrooms in the United States and you can sell them into the fresh market and you can make a profit and be a business. There's lots of those companies out there that are doing that. But mushrooms are 90% water, just like most vegetables. Now, as soon as you dry that mushroom out from $5, now that same pound of mushrooms is worth $50. $50. Now, think about this for a second. Okay, first of all, Nobody's going to pay you $50 just for a mushroom powder because it doesn't work supplement-wise. Now, what if you wanted to make a 4-to-1 extract and, and you need 4 kilos or, 4 let's just say, 4 pounds of that, $200. And then you have to pay for making the extract. Can you imagine? Now your 4-to-1 extract is going to be up around $300 wholesale. So, So the basic issue is that it's not economical to grow mushrooms for supplements. Only, the only way you can really make it happen is if you're a small grower or, or even a larger grower, it doesn't matter, and you supply that to a local herbalist making their own tinctures, selling it to their customers, that'll work that'll work because there's no middleman in between. They're not trying to get into the stores or anything like that. Even if you were selling it direct, you couldn't do that on a large scale. So this is the major issue. And look, I, I thought it was wonderful. I met some great people there who were growing mushrooms. Like there's a, a group now that's growing lion's mane in Olympia, Washington. And I thought I saw a picture of their farm. It was like, damn, that is fantastic. Now, they're not going to be selling those into the supplement market, believe me. Possibly, you could sell, if you had what we would call in the industry, off-grades. Something that doesn't meet the spec for a fresh mushroom. You could probably sell those if you price them cheaply enough. But it's still a mushroom powder, just a straight powder, nothing more. We process all of our dried mushrooms. We we basically... Uh, do a hot water extraction of them, that helps to break down the cell walls. That makes it more bioavailable. You just can't do that in the United States, and and that's the real issue. And look, supply chain-wise, could you imagine if, if the supply chain actually was completely broken between the U.S. and China? Where would all the products come from? (laughs) You know, and and the funny thing to me is, is, is so many people are like, oh, China, I, you know, I I hate, you know, the Chinese products, there's crap and all this. It's like the iPhone is crap. (laughs) These other things are crap. It's like, look, I look at it and I just say, it doesn't really matter what country you are necessarily growing your products in, but it does matter where in that country you're growing that product. I mean, it's like like people, do you realize that all of the chemicals that are sprayed on your food in the United States, chemicals that you don't even know about, and unless you're eating organic, man, I mean, even right now, the glyphosates, they don't even want to talk about the glyphosates that comes from Roundup on all the crops in in the U.S. and, and worldwide. So really... Uh, where you're growing them. In China, we grow way back in the mountains. China produces almost 90% of the world's mushroom. 90%. Dennis, when I went over there for the first time in 1989, I was just like, man, this is so cool. And not only that, we grow our mushrooms in a very natural way, uh, sort of in, in shade houses, outdoors, according to the temperature of the time. So reishi mushroom, we harvest it, in early September because it likes warm temperatures of summer. Harvest it first week in September. Shiitake, maitake, we harvest those in in um, early November because they need the cooler temperatures. And then lion's mane needs even cooler temperatures. It gets harvested at the end of November. And so for us, we have to every year say to our growers, we need X number of dried tonnage of mushrooms, because once we grow our crop, it's not an indoor crop. It's outdoors and in shade houses. So it's really a natural way of growing, and we grow it all on natural materials, wood materials. So so yeah, I, uh, I, 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 I basically encourage people in the United States to grow mushrooms. I think it's a wonderful activity. Man, it is so cool. I, I mean... I loved growing mushrooms when I got into it. I mean, look, the 60s, the 70s. and the 70s, we were growing all sorts of mushrooms. I mean, we weren't just growing. Like, I was on a big farm growing agaricus, which also was growing shiitake, enoki, and oyster. But look, Dennis, on the side, we were growing other mushrooms that fit better into psychedelic science at that
0: time. (laughs) Sure. Well, there's certainly a resurgence of interest, at least in the public consciousness. I don't know that it ever went away. There's always been farms and producers who are meeting that demand. But now it's starting to be, let's say, a little bit more culturally sanctioned. And there's a ton of evidence of this. And for example, there's a very well-known retreat center up in Northern California that has a psychedelic legacy surrounding it. And they publicly minimize their relationship to psychedelics, even though everybody knew, you know, all these big names were going there. And then in the last year or two, they've started to become more public facing and acknowledge this. And I think it's kind of the same with a lot of different organizations and individuals. And that'd be an interesting direction to go next, because I know that Health Canada and various regulatory bodies internationally are starting to grant licenses for people to cultivate psilocybin mushrooms and different varieties of mushrooms. And I've had a few people on the podcast who have the Canadian equivalent of what we would call, I guess, a DEA license in the United States, and they're more at liberty to speak about this. Is this something that NAMEX or that a partner organization may be involved in, which you can share at all with our audience?
1: That's such an interesting question because we really haven't announced the fact that we have a health canada license to grow psilocybin mushrooms we do have that license and and what what i really am interested in doing and which i think is really the the most interesting part about that is we're not interested in growing you know, tons of cubensis mushrooms or anything like that. You know, a lot of companies have that license and they're just kind of like the cannabis companies. They're just like waiting for recreational to open up to where they figure, okay, we're going to be able to make a fortune doing this. And I'm kind of like, man, I am not part of that at all. What I and what we're doing is we're collecting a lot of the other species that are not being uh, popularized, but are out there. And you can wildcraft for these species. I want to be able to test these species, multiple of these species from different areas. So in other words, different strains and build a profile of those other species, which I think is is just super interesting. I, I mean, there's so many other groups working with Psylocoma cubensis. That, that's the main mushroom that people work with, and and with good reason. It's very easy to cultivate. It seems to be very stable in terms of the amount of psilocybin in there. But these other species, they have a a very different profile. And some of them, you know, I'm kind of like, one one of the things I'm interested in is, I I just met somebody at the Psychedelic Science. Maybe you saw the one. He's, uh, He's a Mexican professor, and he was recounting the whole history of psychoactive mushrooms in Mexico. Well, we we talked and I said, you know what, it would be really cool to to talk to the curanderas and the native healers in Mexico that are using the mushrooms and just say, okay, so um, which species are you using? Do you have any thoughts about how one species is different from another species? Does this one? Because they have a lot of different names for these species. One that I like to say to talk about is they uh, I think it's the *Cephalosporium apetiforme*, where they call it the mushroom of superior reason. <laughs> well, that that just for me, I'm like that is fascinating. And can you imagine if they were actually going? Yeah, this one I like a little better because of this reason, or this one has this, you know, a little bit different. Effect and interestingly enough, you know, uh, in Mexico generally they do not use cubensis. The cubensis, interestingly enough, it it seems, and all of the information seems to point to the fact that cubensis came over with cattle from the Europeans, and it wasn't there as a native. Now. There is a slight possibility that it could have been, but it seems like that is the real reason and that is where you go to find them. If you want to find them in Mexico or Central America, you go out to the cow pastures and they are growing right out of the dung and that is why they are so easy to cultivate. So, but the native healers tend to look down on that as an inferior mushroom. Well, Who knows why, but it would sure be interesting to look at the profile the analytical profile of these different mushrooms, because there are compounds other than psilocybin and psilocin. And the other thing too is, look, when you're eating these mushrooms and somebody says, okay, here, I've got some mushrooms for you. They could be very different from that same species that you ate, you know, in another state or from another area. You don't really know, you know, how many of these should I eat to get where I want to go? Should I only eat a few? I mean, sometimes, I mean, I've had some psilocybes in Mexico where the smallest little mushrooms were like powerful. Oh my God, it's just amazing. Then other times you'd eat two or three times as much and not get as high. So what is going on? I, I mean, there's so many different possibilities, right? But that would be the first thing I would look at. Let's just have a look at what's in there, see what other compounds... We know there's other compounds in there right now, but there could be a whole raft of them, and so a profile of these other species. Man, wouldn't that just be so
0: amazing? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, part of the reason I've stayed in Chiapas for so long is there are an estimated 50,000 different varieties of fungi here And only about 2% have been documented and described. And every time I go out on forays with local homegrown Chiapanec and mycologists, they're finding new species, you know, the first time they've ever documented this one in Chiapas. And it's really tremendously exciting. And especially when you consider the robust body of indigenous knowledge that in many cases is unfortunately waning due to the effects of things like globalization and like younger generations moving into the cities and... Having maybe a keener interest in things like TikTok and Champions League football and soccer than in the traditions of their ancestors, which is not exclusively the case, but it's something that seems to be happening. And as an example of this, in the capital of Chiapas, Tuxla Gutierrez, there's an open air market. And some of my local friends who are born and raised in Tuxla say that there used to be dozens of wild mushroom vendors. And now there's only a handful of them left because the demand for a lot of the wild mushrooms that have been foraged has, has subsided for a number of reasons. There's actually active government educational campaigns discouraging people from foraging wild mushrooms. And I've seen these large banners that will very clearly state that it's dangerous. Don't do it. There's poisonous mushrooms. Of course there are poisonous mushrooms. We have Amanita phylloides and death caps, but there's also a tremendous amount of knowledge pointing towards which mushrooms can safely be consumed and thankfully there are quite a few a rising tide of activists and environmental educators who are working with this and trying to keep this flame alive and organizations like fungi foundation Giuliana ferci and many similar and analogous organizations who are working to document and preserve a lot of this indigenous knowledge and you mentioned that they have a lot of different names for these mushrooms the derumbes the san the pajaritos depending on who you talk to and where they've got a hombrecitos so one other thing i learned very recently one of the things i love about mushrooms how constantly and continuously we're learning new things and you may have seen this news story that Janet Yellen, a United States diplomat, just ate some, that. That quote, hilarious. psychedelic mushrooms over in China, and they were documented as being a boletus mushroom, a type of boletus. Have you ever heard of this particular mushroom? And have you ever seen anything like that in your many years in China?
1: Well, well, you know what, look, um, boletus has a couple of species that blue, but they're not. they don't have psilocybin in them. So you can have mushroom species that do have that reaction, but it's not psilocybin related. So, so, but they were having fun with it, right? And I thought it was hilarious. They said, oh, she just loved this mushroom so much that she asked for seconds and thirds. And so people just sort of picked up on that and went, oh, isn't this funny, Janet Yellen? just really loves her psychoactive mushrooms, and there she is. When she got up, she was probably walking. Oh, isn't this beautiful? So, no, it was it was really fun. And look, I I know a professor uh, in Chiapas at one of the universities, and he is actively teaching, and he has projects teaching local people to grow mushrooms. So so. You know, a lot of times what happens is, is governments will promote that and say, you know, with the wild mushrooms, oh, you know, be careful. But, but that takes ultimately um, people who know wild mushrooms well. And then like up here in the north or anywhere in the United States, we have mushroom societies and people have uh, every year here in Vancouver and Seattle and San Francisco, they have these. Um, a weekend where everybody goes out in forests, and then they bring back all these mushrooms they identify them they invite the public in and they're educating and that's what needs to happen down there too you know in some ways Mexico is you know ahead in a way but a lot of ways times they're, they're still kind of lagging they're, they're a conservative society Mexico you know it really is even when you get up into the mountains with the indigenous people it's a conservative country
0: Sure. And I understand you spent some formative years in Oaxaca and in Mexico. And last time we had you on the podcast, you were also down in Oaxaca. So how how long did you spend in Oaxaca back in the 70s? And did that shape your interest in mushrooms in any way?
1: Well, well, look. That was part of my study at university, was basically psilocybin mushrooms and their use in shamanism. My uh, field of study was anthropology, and I just morphed it into, you know, the <laughs> use of mushrooms. I had a mycology course there, too, University of Washington. They had a my- mycology department. Not many universities have a mycology department. So then after university, I went, look, I'm, I'm off to Mexico. I'm off on the mushroom trail, so to speak. So I was down there for a year and a half. I, I was just living very simply, didn't have a lot of money, traveling around, lots of great people traveling around at that time. I mean, I was up. I, I had a house that I rented in San Jose El Pacífico before it was anything. It was just a little tiny, you know, bus stop. That was all it was back then, but I had rented a house there for a number of months. And that's where all the, the psychoactive mushrooms funneled up from the surrounding area to San Jose, and they had people there that would be selling them. So it was a really, uh, I went through San Jose um, when I was down in Oaxaca this last time on the bus. And I just kind of looked at it. I didn't even bother to get out. I just looked out and I went, holy smokes, has that changed? You know, it was just a, a totally uh, psychedelicized spot, right? And people come there for that very reason. And, and you know, that that's that's cool you know, I kind of, I'm not part of those scenes anymore, so I'm kind of like, okay, that's not where I want to be, right? But there is still some interesting things going on there. I mean, you could sit there and have different mushroom species brought to you and then be spore printing them and stuff like that, which would make sense. But there are other areas too that are less well-traveled and less well-known that would be areas that I would probably be frequenting and not kind of the places where the scene is. A scene like that would be great back in the 70s for me, but not not today. I'm kind of like not in that particular arena anymore. But, but you know, um, it's just interesting that Mexico, even though the mushrooms are illegal, allows this to happen. And, and I'm sure they, they allow it just because they're like, well, it's bringing in revenue And the local people in the community are doing well. The only thing I I don't like about it either as an anthropologist is what happens is that all of a sudden the mushroom, which, you know, it's a sacred mushroom, becomes commoditized. And now locals are making money and building businesses. And that kind of creates an artificial situation in those communities. All of a sudden you have some people that are getting very rich by selling mushrooms. Mushrooms that, how sacred are they when they get into commerce? I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why I, I really like mushroom cultivation. That, there, there's a business for you. Cultivate the mushrooms, right? But wildcrafting? Dennis, at some point, you're going to wildcraft it right out and or you're going to have people out there that are degrading the local environment trying to find these mushrooms. Here in British Columbia, we have people out looking for the Matsutake, which is a very valuable mushroom. And some of them will be out there with a rake because the Matsutake at times are kind of under the, the duff and stuff and they'll find them and then they'll start to rake around and it's like you're destroying the habitat. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this before in the last thing, but this happened in Europe with the truffle. There was 200 tons of fresh truffles coming out of Europe in the 1900s, early 1900s. Today, there's about... 10 tons. And most of it is no longer wild crafted because the the wild crafting areas have now gotten housing developments and all that. Now they're in in actual cultivated areas where they're planting trees and the truffle is uh, on the tree roots in a mycorrhizal relationship. So it can really change things. And I'm, you know, I'm not really
0: supportive of that. Sure. You know, I just had a discourse with a fellow, I believe in Minnesota, who is a wild crafter, and apparently there are some new regulations that are being rolled out that essentially would protect national parks from foragers. And obviously this is causing quite a a mixed reaction among mushroom enthusiasts and communities because on the one hand, we fully understand the need to conserve and protect. And on the other hand, there's this idea of surrendering a lot of rights or what people have considered their rights to a regulatory body that maybe isn't even locally Active, maybe it's more you know outside of the area. So that's something again. It's a nuanced dialogue and one that's worth having and looking at. And the un- unprecedented interest in mushrooms also extends to this because maybe two decades ago you didn't have many foragers looking for matsutake, and now maybe.
1: Well, well, you know what the issue really is, in my opinion, is that look, local populations are out foraging and collecting enough to bring home to eat and and all of that. The issue is when you get commercial harvesters coming in by the van load and they're out in your local area harvesting mushrooms on a commercial basis. And that's the real issue to me because I I think local people going out and and harvesting mushrooms, hey, nothing wrong with that at all. They'll protect the local habitat. Commercial har- harvesters will, will not, and and that's what really needs to be kind of stopped in that sense because they they just they will come in and, and at times just ruin it for for locals, and, and so that's the real issue in my opinion. And I, I just I'm not a big fan of wildcrafting period. Commercial commercial wildcrafting, and and I say that, and yet we do buy chaga from Russia uh, um, and. and But I I guess my opinion on that is that the forests that contain chaga are so vast. And and a lot of people say, well, the chaga is is not there anymore in my area. And I'm like, yeah, because people in your area are going along the roads and anything that's close along the roads, they'll harvest out. And then you're going like the chaga has gone. Yeah, well, you're going to have to go in deeper. And that's a lot of work. Man, I mean, can you imagine chaga harvesting? What would you do? Be be running in there with a ladder? <laughs> it's like it's not an easy thing to harvest. And, and certainly you want to harvest close to the road. You don't want to have to go in 100 meters or... Uh, 500 meters and then have to haul out a bag of chaga like Santa Claus or something, you know? It's like, no, (laughs) that's going to be a significant amount of work.
0: Yeah, one of the themes that's emerging here is the challenges of commercializing or commodifying nature, essentially, right? And I think I've done some research into one of the first, if not the first, environmental policies that was issued by A state regulatory body in the history of the world came during what I believe was Ming Dynasty China in the 1800s. And it's because so many immigrants coming from Mongolia and various other places who became Chinese nationals during that era, that was a viable economic trade for them is to go out and wild forage mushrooms. Now, when you only have a few people doing it, that's one thing. But when it becomes an industry and you have a lot of people who are incentivized to harvest as many as possible, that fundamentally changes the dynamics of how they're going about and how many tons, etc. over the year. And I just thought that was an interesting story because a lot of the history of civilization, you can look and find stories like this around mushrooms and around people working with mushrooms to forage them or to cultivate them. Another example, I was reading about the Paris mushroom. I don't know if you've ever heard of this one, but back in the 1700s or so, a lot of button mushrooms, I think they were in Agaricus uh but they were known as the paris mushrooms because they were harvested cultivated and harvested in catacombs under paris because much of paris was built out of the stone right from quarries from the city and then the limestone exactly so they started harvesting mushrooms there and now of course that mushroom production has been outsourced in a lot of cases And where it is still locally grown, they're grown in hangars. but there are three-star Michelin chefs and renowned chefs who will only buy the true Paris mushrooms that are grown in the catacombs because of their terroir. The same idea, kind of hard to pinpoint, you know, and it's like, you know, debatable how much that contributes. But I was just reading this week because I'm headed off to Paris soon, and I always like to look for these interesting stories around mushrooms and say, maybe I'll go to the catacombs and seek out A Paris mushroom.
1: Dennis, look, it's called the the champignon de Paris, the the Paris mushroom. And that's, that's in a sense, where agaricus cultivation started in France, underground in those limestone uh, uh, tunnels and caves. And why is it grown there? Well, interestingly enough, number one, uh, um, agaricus does not need light to grow. Most mushrooms need light. People don't understand that. They think, oh, yeah, mushrooms, it is grow in the dark, right? No, no. Mushrooms need light to grow. Uh, very few don't. The Agaricus mushroom doesn't. Not only that, in those uh, tunnels, the temperature is constant at a temperature that Agaricus likes, right around 60 Fahrenheit. So they're perfect for growing mushrooms. And, and look, if you if you take a trip and you can probably google it up if you take a trip down to Loire Valley they have a couple of museums down there too which you you travel down into this tunnel and they're growing the agaricus in the old fashioned way and they have a lot of interesting stuff there as well when they did it initially they did it in uh, compost mounds on the ground uh, later on, they started doing it in plastic bags, where they could heavy plastic bags, where they could move them around much easier and, and prepare the substrates better and all of that. But damn, man, when you go, you should definitely try and find that, that spot. I, I went to that spot. I was in Paris in 2008, actually, and we were driving around the Loire Valley, and there it was along the road. I'm like, damn. Pull in, let's check this place out. Really cool. And who knows, there might be some other mushroom farms that are still grown in the, the limestone caves that you could look up. And they, they would probably be doing tours and stuff like that. Yeah, you've
0: had a lot of interesting mushroom travels in your day, both you know for the business side, but also for going to these conferences. I understand that there was a big conference in Belgrade, Serbia recently that I unfortunately couldn't make it out to that I hope to make it to the next one. Of course, China, Mexico. Last time I talked to you, I think you were even in Tasmania. I don't know if that was mushroom related. But can you talk a little bit about the mushroom conference landscape? Because I know that there's a big one that happens in Amsterdam every couple of years that your son Sky mentioned he was at. Belgrade we mentioned. Uh, you, there was a big one in Shanghai, China just a few years ago. And I've benefited a lot personally from going out to the psychedelic industry and mushroom industry conferences and meeting people, because at the end of the day, you do business with people you trust and you build a rapport with. So, you know, share research with, at least that's what we would hope for. So what has your experience been like traveling around the world to these different mushroom industry conferences? Well, well, I, I'm a member of a couple of organizations, um,
1: actually three different organizations. One is called the International Society for Mushroom Science. And, and, and you know, um, I, I went to a first conference. With them in 1979 in France, Dennis, and and it was just so amazing. Uh, One of the uh, activities that we did is we went out to a truffle farm and there was a local guy with a pig on a leash wandering around and the pig would find where the truffles were and they also had a dog a small little French poodle that was also trained to find the truffles so International Society for Mushroom Science they hold uh, uh, their conferences every four years listen the next one is in February in Las Vegas uh, another one, which is a newer organization that uh, started up in the, uh, the, I believe around 2000 or something called the um, International Medicinal Mushroom uh, Society. So, um, and they, they have their conference every two years. That's what was in Belgrade. And the one prior to that was one that we went to just before uh, COVID and it was in China and um, 2019. And the difference is between that and, let's say, the Mushroom Summit, these conferences are for mushroom scientists from all over the world And, and, and mushroom growers, commercial mushroom growers primarily. But they're just packed with interesting people. And what Sky was referring to was the ISMS conference that we went to in 2016. And look, in 2016 at that conference and in 2019 at the um, uh, Medicinal Mushroom Conference, International Society for Medicinal Mushrooms, I presented to both. I had a, a presentation to both of them about the analytical standards that NAMEX had created. And so there's lots of scientific papers being presented, lots of interesting scientists to talk to. Totally different conference than, let's say, the Mushroom Summit, which was not science-oriented, so to speak, at, at all. Um, uh, and these are international people from around the world, um, they're th- you're there for three or four days, and, and normally they also have these, these side trips, um, which are some of the more interesting parts of it. Like in 1986, I was at a conference, uh ISMS conference in Budapest. And at that point in time, oyster mushrooms were just coming on as a big thing. And in Hungary, they were way out in front of everybody else in terms of growing oyster mushrooms. So, yeah, those two. And then there's one more that's the, um, what's that one, is a society, the International Society for Mushroom Biology and Mushroom Products. And so I've been to multiple conferences all through the years, and these things were just great. And I love the fact of, you know, look, China is actually where all of the major research is going on right now. I mean, they have numerous mushroom research centers. In the United States, we have one Penn State University. Uh, I went back, I went to a conference there in 1973 because they had a course every year at Penn State. At that point, they had 10. Mushroom scientists working there, and the reason was because Penn State University is connected to the largest commercial agaricus production center in the United States, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. They had ten scientists. Today, Penn State has one, one mushroom scientist, and so, and nowhere else in the United States do they have an actual uh, organized. Uh, in a university, mushroom set of people that are actually studying mushrooms and helping out commercial growers. China, they have ten of these types of facilities. They have conferences all the time. They have uh, tens of thousands of mushroom growers, lots of small growers. It, it's just like the heartland for that. Actually, I mean that's where it all started. You know, they started growing mushrooms in Europe in the late late 1700s with the gear, Because in China, they were growing shiitake in the 12th century so it's like no that's where it all started that's where it's really happening japan korea china oh god they're so far ahead of us in all of that so that's that's why these conferences in asia are for me really the the true gold of this whole thing
0: sure you know i was fascinated to learn that north korea actually has a Official state mushroom slogan. They've got have a bunch, a bunch of official state slogans, but one of them is specific to mushrooms and. I'm paraphrasing here, but it says something to the tune of, let ours be an industry of scientific mushroom growth and scientific knowledge of mushrooms. And you can look that up. If you just Google North Korea mushroom state slogan, you'll see what I mean. And just, I'm fascinated going down the rabbit hole of all these different cultures and their connection to mushrooms, especially in Asia. As you mentioned, I was just in Asia for three months this year. It's been maybe my sixth or seventh trip over there. And... This time around, I was specifically looking for cordyceps and for lion's mane and different products. And as you well know, Jeff, it is extraordinary how ubiquitous and how available a lot of these highly specialized mushrooms that you don't see the fruiting bodies of in the United States. You see them over, you know, I've been to China. Last time was 2006. It's been a while. But like Taiwan and Korea and Thailand, you go into these little health food stores and you'll find a dozen different varieties of cordyceps grown on different mediums and you're buying an ounce of cordyceps for, you know, two or three us dollars where here in the States, if I want a half ounce of cordyceps, somebody might ask for $50 for that, right? And that's if I know someone. That's not You're not going to find that in a Whole Foods necessarily. So my my question here is, do you foresee a future in which the North American market and retail stores catch up a little bit? And are we headed in that direction? Or do you think that the supplement market is where it's at? Well, look, I, I
1: my theme has always been eat more mushrooms. I think mushrooms are really the premier longevity food and I think people don't eat enough mushrooms here. We're really fortunate. I, I mean, Dennis, in 1973, the only mushroom in the market was agaricus, period. The farm I worked on for 10 years there, we had a Japanese scientist. He was growing shiitake, oyster mushrooms, and enoki Talking. I was eating fresh shiitake in the in the 1970s. It was amazing. Today, Finally, if you're in the right place, you can get fresh shiitake, fresh maitake. Lion's mane is starting to, to appear in the market. You can get a shimeji's. So we're really fortunate today. And, and the thing to me is, look, before you even supplement, start eating mushrooms. I think they are maybe the premier longevity food. Because you're going to be getting the beta-glucans and other compounds from these mushrooms. They're high in fiber. They're just a, an awesome food. You can do so much with them cooking-wise. So so I'm always telling people, put mushrooms into your diet. They're very important. And some of the studies that they've done show that areas where there's a lot of mushroom growing and people are eating elevated amounts of mushrooms that those populations do live longer i I believe that and and i mean uh, i just think that's something where we're lacking i call it the the um uh missing dietary link is what i call it Well, the proof's in
0: the pudding. And Jeff, you look great. You're very lucid and eloquent. So I guess uh, a lifetime of eating mushrooms will do that to you. And I hope to be on the same trajectory myself, friend. So I guess we're getting towards the end of my line of questioning here. But I wanted to leave you with the last few minutes to share anything with the audience that you're currently working on or any parting shots that you have in terms of what people should be paying attention to and how we can right the ship, so to speak, and have a more... Accurate, scientifically accurate, and competitive and fair mushroom industry.
1: Well, you know, um, I didn't really address the whole citizen's petition uh, much earlier on in this, but we have filed a citizen's petition with the FDA where we're asking them to, to step in and actually enforce what they've said previously, which is you can't call mycelium mushroom. You can't, period. So that, that's something, and that this is like definitions and things like that because, look, labeling, of products is important. It's just like labeling the proper plant part. You know, which fungal part do you have in there? Don't say it's mushroom if it's not mushroom. Don't say it's mushroom if you've fairy dusted with mushrooms. That is just deceitful. So that, that's one of the major things. The other thing, Dennis, that, that I really want to sort of talk about just briefly here is that we are coming out. We have just got brought a new product to market, which is a High vitamin D mushroom uh, uh, powder. And this is essentially, uh, you know, mushrooms are really high in this compound called ergosterol. That's the fungal sterile. If you place it under a UV light, that turns into vitamin D2. And we've been able to get 15,000 IUs per gram of this product. And it's just amazing. So that's something, I mean, can you imagine if you're getting your uh, vitamin D actually from a natural product? You're, you're consuming that. I mean, you do it probably in a supplement form. Mushrooms themselves don't have a lot of vitamin D. But this ergosterol is much like our cholesterol. That's a product that we're just introducing. And the other thing too is, a, is a, this compound that we measure, ergothionine. We have a mushroom, it's called the Golden Oyster. Dennis, that mushroom, you've probably been aware of it, you've probably seen it out there. The Golden Oyster, the highest mushroom out there in ergothionine. We've got an ergothionine product right now that we're selling this based on yeast, but we're going to replace that with simply a mushroom powder, which is this Golden Oyster and that, will, that produces five milligrams per uh, uh, kilogram. So we're really excited about those two products because they're just basically from the mushroom period without like trying to to um, um, concentrate them or do anything like that or extract them out and build it up in one way or the other, no, no, just Having a solid cultivar that produces that amount, especially in terms of the ergothionine, it's just so cool. I mean, mushrooms,
0: Dennis, what can I say? They're just just so cool. There's so much going on. The gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, endlessly fascinating, and they seem to attract the nicest, most interesting people in many cases. So, Jeff Chilton of Namex, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Huge honor to host you, and I hope we make this a three-peat and do another episode at some point in the near future.
1: I'll keep you posted, Dennis, for sure. And thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And it was great to meet you in person down at the Mushroom Summit. Cool.
0: And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Michaelpreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.